When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Peter here with Real Estate Trends and Market Updates. Thanks so much for checking us out this week. And we have a good episode for you. We have Jerome Myers. And before we get into it, I just want to say how beneficial it is to do your due diligence up front on partnerships and being able to build the right partnership before you get into actually the deal, or maybe you do one deal and joint venture with them. And then from there, do a couple other ones and then really jump into maybe building a company with that person. We go over it a lot. We talk about what it takes to, you know, build that partnership to actually be successful versus the ones that, you know, you hear about that fail. I think it's a lot of people end up hearing about business, not even real estate, but hearing about business. And they ultimately get worried about partnering with someone because they hear the horror stories and they don't hear, you know, the good things that come out of partnerships. They just talk to someone at, you know, a function. They seem like they hit it off as friends and then realize maybe they both have the same skill set and they need to be opposites. Or, you know, one person initially did seem very gung-ho and motivated about it, but ultimately has other things in life that are bogging them down that they couldn't be a good partner. So we talk about that a lot. I really want to make sure that, you know, when you get into a venture with somebody and you talk about this huge thing that's going to be, you know, a massive company, realize that that person may not have the same vision or they may say that they have the vision just like you do, but ultimately it's not the same. And why is that so important? It's important because it can save you time and it can definitely save you money. We've been in scenarios where we've partnered with some people and ultimately it didn't really pan out properly and we had to back out of the the partnership. So those things do happen and they just need to make sure that, you know, you're you're doing your due diligence on properties and partnerships up front before you get into hot water where you have 15 or 20 properties and the person's good there, but you want to scale the 200 and they want to stay at 15 to 20. So I think going back to just joint venturing on one to two and then kind of seeing how your personalities mesh, how you act as a partner just in those small ventures versus jumping into something bigger than that is going to serve you much better in the long run versus jumping into something big. That's one thing. The second thing is make sure that when you do pick that right partner after maybe doing a couple of deals with them, you sit down with them as you're doing those deals and saying, hey, what's your you know ultimate goal in this? Do you want to sell the company? Do you want to keep the company until we retire? And then ultimately pass it along to someone that wants to take it over like kids? Or do you want to sell it in five years? How do you really see this thing playing out? That's very helpful too, because you may have, you know, thoughts of keeping 
all those properties that are in the portfolio for 30 to 40 years and then passing them down, you know, 50% of them, the, the ones that you own down to your kids. And that person may not have that same vision. They may want to sell it. And after, you know, 10 or 15 years. So those things, those are tough conversations to have up front and also to have, uh, you this, they're way tougher if you're, you know, 15 to 20 years in and then realize that this is the conversation, you know, you have to have with a person or the partner. So things to think about, like I said, Jerome is a very, very good guy to at least listen to on our podcast and hear him on a couple other podcasts about how he's been able to be successful at those partnerships and build those relationships with the people that are good people to be, you know, in the seats on the bus. So make sure you listen to that, cue into that. And then Jerome does a lot of multifamily. So if you are looking in, you know, buying multifamily, he's a good person to follow and and make sure that you stay, you know, in his sphere on what he's doing and how he's being able to buy these deals. And he also bought one from, I believe it was a city. So he was able to purchase one. They actually got into escrow back in 2019 and they're still in escrow. They haven't closed yet. So that was an interesting one to chat about. But listen to that as well. And then listen to, if you are interested in the multifamily, shoot Jerome an email and ask him a couple of questions. So without further ado, we'll jump into it. Thanks so much for listening. If you guys can leave us a rating and review on the platforms you listen to us on. We'll check you guys after the show. Hey, Jerome, what's going on, man? Thanks for taking out the time today to chat with us. Just, you know, super excited to get you on here and you know, really hear your story. I, I know I've heard you on a, a couple of podcasts and super inspirational. So I'm really appreciative that you came on the show. Peter, just grateful to be with you, my brother. Thank you for having me. Yeah, 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 of course, man. So before we jump into it, can you give us a little background on who you are and how you came up in business and to what you're doing now with real estate? Yeah, man, I'm just a corporate America dropout. It, find myself there and uh, starting in 2016. I had the fortune of building a $20 million division for a Fortune 550. And my reward for that was laying people off two years in a row. And so the second go around, I thought about a dream I had back in college, sophomore year. Me and my buddy Duran were sitting on the stoop. And we started doing a little bit of math. And we realized the guy that owned the property was making $700,000 a year, but we never saw him. We never talked to him. And so I was like, man, that sounds a whole lot better than laying people off year over year. I wonder if I can do that. And so I marched off to the banks and said, oh, don't you want to give me a million dollar loan? <laughs> they all told me no and found myself fixing and flipping. And I didn't really like that. I realized that I was working harder than when I had a W-2. And you know, the relationships with the contractors weren't the greatest because I felt like folks were trying to get over on me. And so after going through a few flips, I was fortunate enough to meet somebody and ended up doing my first multifamily deal. And from there, we've pivoted and started doing some real estate education as well as some one-on-one coaching for folks who are looking to exit the matrix, as we call it. <laughs> so a lot to unwrap. And I want to go back to you know when you started. So you were corporate and then you bounced out of that just because it left a bad taste in your mouth because you had to let go of so many people, which sucks, dude. That's, uh, you know, I don't think that would be fun at all, you know, going through that process, especially it's not your company, right? So you're just letting these people know that they're, you know, it's their last day on Friday and that's it. And uh, you have really no tangible things outside of just being there to let them go. 
How do you think that that shaped, you know, you going into what you're doing today with multifamily? Yeah, I mean, it was for me a traumatic experience. Imagine getting a call at 4:55 on Christmas Eve and somebody saying, "Hey, the team that you built from 2 to 170 is going to be cut in half." And, you know, they can have somebody else do it, but you've got to go and do another 20 million next year. So it's probably best that you pick your kickball team. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, we argue a little bit, but, you know, then five o'clock rolls around and the statement is, hey, I'm going to go spend the holidays with my family. I'll talk to you next year. And I'm left to spend the holidays in anguish trying to figure out who's going to have a job in a week and a half or so. Yeah. So. You know, it changed everything for me because I realized a couple of things. One, bigger isn't always better. Uh, two, it's not about delivering maximum profits to the shareholders. And I think that one has been a big impact or influence on the way we invest in multifamily. So we're super interested in not only making profit, but being able to make an impact with our investments. And so a person's home is the environment that they spend the most time in, especially through covid And so the idea here is to make sure that they have a safe place where they can rest their head. And as long as they take care of the units that we put them in, you know, they have a pretty phenomenal space to call home. And that's super important for us. And we, we look to buy properties that aren't in the greatest condition. We can go in and fix them up and give somebody who's, you know, in workforce or in the day to day workforce an opportunity to create a space that they can actually call home because some of them will forever be runners. Yeah. 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 Now that's definitely a good mission, you know, especially being able to provide that to the the people, you know, that are looking to rent because like you said, you know, some are going to be renters for life and there's nothing wrong with that, but you're giving them, you know, a good space to live, you know, and you're actually able to provide that to like some landlords you run into that like their last thought is, you know, how the condition is. And their first thought is what the profit is. So that's huge for you. So you left corporate and then you went into flipping. You realized like, hey, man, that's still super active. You only did a couple of them. And the reason you did it was just for some cash flow to potentially purchase some, you know, positive cash flow properties. Was that the thought? Well, you know, anybody who's flipped knows that it's negative cash flow for a really long time before it's positive, right? I It was all that I knew. So when I was in corporate, I was doing some hard money lending to folks who were fixing and flipping. And when I realized that, going to immediately in a multifamily was not going to work out for me. So while well, I'm out here in the la la land, I better do something. And so the pivot was, well, these guys aren't that much smarter than me. And there's a reason why they can pay me 20% of the money I'm putting in their deals. There must be something here. Right. Yeah. And so we went through and started doing We did a decent amount of flips. It wasn't just a couple. And so on the backside of that, I realized that I didn't want to run contractors. You know, I, I went as far as getting my general contractor's license. I was already oh, really? a licensed engineer. And it was like, this isn't fun. Like the majority of people I'm working with, if they graduated high school, didn't do anything after that. And you know, I was in a pretty high level opportunity when I was in corporate and everybody I was dealing with had graduate degrees. And, you know, it was a very different ecosystem from the people who were still having food fights. And I got so fed up with people who just didn't follow through with what they said they were going to do. Yeah, you know, I, my, my dad was a soldier and, you know, your word was your bond. You either did it or you died trying. And, yeah. you know, for, I remember having a guy pull out on me the week of closing, 
right? Mm-hmm. Have punch list items was an opportunity for him to get his last paycheck. And he just walked away. He said it wasn't worth his time. And here I am trying to figure out scramble. I didn't have another alternative. And, you know, in the end I lost that contract and, and it probably cost me, you know, $60,000 in total because of all the things that happened after that. And so I wanted to deal with a higher level of investor. I wanted to deal with more sophisticated contractors and like it or not, buying things that cost more elevates the game, right? It keeps people out of the space that probably shouldn't be there, at least the ones I don't want to deal with. Yeah. I mean, we could talk all day, especially about contractors going through those contractors. And I know some people that they do flips and they ultimately got their contractor's license because they didn't want to deal with the headache of going five to six of them, you know, almost sometimes a year till they found a good one and then kept that good one for two to three years. And they bumped their prices so high that they had to go on and, and do the same, <laughs> the same algorithm of like, okay, hey, I got to go back to the drawing board and get these five to six and go through them again. So you did some flips and then you know, going through it, I think that that, you know, at least shows a lot of people when they're jumping into real estate and everything like that is there's that active lifestyle. And then it's like, okay, well, what's best for me? What's, you know, sometimes people love that lifestyle of being completely active. I can tell you right now that I enjoy, you know, I do a lot of real estate sales and I'm, you know, very active in it. So that's kind of my personality. But then there's some people like, you know, what you transition into is, hey, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, get into multifamily. So when was that transition? When did you guys end up buying, you know, your first deal? I think it was what, 23 units or something? Yeah, it was 23 units behind the Chimbo Mart in Richmond, Virginia. (laughs) We did that approximately 11 months after I decided I was going to exit corporate. So I was flipping and through the transition, like there was overlap because I still had open projects going. But yeah, it took us about 11 months to get the deal closed. And I actually bought the first deal I tried to buy from the, with the bank. It was just, I had to go find partners because I didn't have experience. I think every investor is trying to overcome knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital. And I had a yeah. little bit of capital, had a credit score. I didn't have much knowledge. I certainly didn't have much deal flow. I was getting all my stuff off LoopNet. And experience, as the bank told me, was negligent. So I had to go find somebody with some experience to get this thing rolling. Yeah. And so what'd you experience, you know, for that first deal? Like, was there some takeaways? Like, hey, I shouldn't have done this and I did that. And if so, what are those? I mean, you don't have to go through the list because obviously, you know, there's probably like 15 to 20, you know, small things here and there. But what are like two big takeaways from that first deal? Like, hey, I should have done this and I should have done that. Man, I was an idiot, Peter. Like, let's be clear. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I think the first thing is know your partners, right? Yeah. We partner with four other guys that do the deal, did a joint venture. That's kind of just been our claim to fame. Claim right? to fame. We're, yeah. we're the only people who aren't doing syndications. And what, what I found was, you know, when you're in a partnership, you're really in a partnership. And there's an opportunity for a lot of rubs. If people don't actually know, like, and trust each other at a deep level, not some, I met you at a conference, now we're going to go buy a million dollar asset together and all sign our names on this loan. And we don't even think about people, the population the same way. I'll never forget sitting in a meeting and somebody says, yeah, we don't want those people there anyway. Like, wait, they're paying us rent. They're our customers. What do you mean those people? Right. But you know, I think that's one. Two, I think you really need to understand the deal that you're buying. You know, I, I was glossy eyed. I I was happy just to be there. Right. But 
the deal was really tough. Like we we're getting ready to close. Well, we're not under contract yet, but we've got a few LOIs. We're getting ready to sell that asset. And what I found was there's really two approaches in multifamily investing. There's lipstick on a pig where you don't really do anything. And then there's real deal renovations, putting some real money into it. And as we were going through due diligence as a partnership, we hadn't agreed on what the actual path was. Okay. And, you know, that had really big implications as we started to move through the project because, oh, it's two very different strategies. And so when I think about all the things that we did wrong, we should have failed. Now we're going to three and four X the money on this deal, but, you know, we didn't really know each other. We just bought a deal with enough fat on it that people aren't going to be able to see all the bumps in the road. I think the other thing that we did is if you're going to do a major construction project, get your permits before you close. That was the most idiotic thing we did. We had the property on the contract from June until November. And Mm -hmm. we didn't get our permits before we closed. And I swear to you, it took months for us to get through the permitting process. And we did what we could while we were waiting, but I'll still, I'll never forget. We had to change the main drain because it broke Mm -hmm. and we didn't get that permitted. And the plumbing inspector came out, saw what we did, told us that we put the wrong pipe in, made us pull the whole pipe back out. It was a $30,000 ordeal, right? Stop trying to cut corners. Like actually get the permits and get the drawings done. And that's all stuff you can do before you close. Even though people don't like to spend the money, it's worth it on the backside because you don't have to pay interest on the money that you borrow because you're waiting to go through the permitting process. Yeah. I mean, especially with what we went through this past year, you know, I'll touch on that point of how long those permits take. You know, we did one and it took us, you know, they said that it was going to be eight weeks and it ultimately turned into like four and a half months. So yeah, it takes a lot longer. So, you know, get ahead of that curve and be able to do that is, you know, it saves you a lot of money. Just like you said, you know, do the permits when you're going through escrow and then have that thing ready to go as soon as you close day one. So you can get those contractors in there and start doing it because that takes the longest time. The construction's the short time, the permitting process, because they keep asking you to change things. And you're like, dude, I, I changed it. So that's a good takeaway. And then, you know, partnering up and being able to align with, for one, what the partner's, you know, vision is the other, you know, you have three other guys, it sounds like so a total of four, right. And being able to align, you know, 25% is saying this 25, 25, 25, this is our end goal. And then, you know, write that up on some type of vision board or write that up on something where, you know, all four of you guys can say like, this is where we're going and this is what we see. You know what I mean? And, and I've fallen, you know, victim to that too, is one person, you know, I'm saying like, Hey, let's shoot for the stars. And the other person's like, dude, I just want to get like two properties and I'm good. You know, you gotta be on the same path. If you're not on the same path, you're just jammed. And it's nothing worse than having a situation where a person can hold your property hostage, right? If they can hold your project hostage, you're, you can become super frustrated and what ends up happening is it becomes a waiting game. And then the person who's willing to take the haircut is the person who loses the money while the other person just kind of smiles and is a more patient thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of takeaways in that first deal and that's why, you know, it's so big to take action to get into the game, whatever you're going to do and then jump forth. So how does it look now? Like, 
you know, you guys are moving through trying to sell that property. So was that property a value add property and reposition or you guys just figured you were going to buy it and hold it for X amount of years and then see what you're going to do with it then? Oh, value add, my brother. Deep value add. We we did the roof siding, added half bathrooms on the first floor and it's on slab. So we had the jackhammer, uh, new electrical, HVAC, parking, landscaping. I mean, there wasn't a surface of the building we didn't touch, right? And that just took a while. And we had, we're at a point now where it's like, do you sell it or do you refi it? Mm -hmm. I think we sell it, right? It's, (laughs) we took rents from $6.95 to $12.95 or no, $11.95. And we just rented something at like $12.50. And so, you know, we knocked it out the park, but again, there's just so many things that you learn along the way, and it's kind of easy to gloss over the pain of actually getting through the deal. And when I go on podcasts, I just hate the concept of romanticizing the experience because people get in and they're like, man, this thing isn't working the way everybody's talking about, and then they get discouraged, and maybe they don't do another deal. And I just don't ever want anybody to get in with these rose-colored glasses thinking, hey, this is going to be perfect. It's not. You're running a business. You're going to get hit in the mouth and things aren't going to go as planned. You're going to have to write some checks. You're you're going to get some schedule delays, but it's all part of the game. And as long as you can persist and you're committed to getting out by going through, you'll be okay. But, you know, when folks want to fold up tents and just say, all right, we're just going to sell it, that's when people start to lose cash. Yeah. Well, speaking about that deal, you guys had planned to do, you know, major value add. So you got value add that is in your sites when you purchase the property and you guys are obviously needing to do permits and everything else. What was your budget? And did you guys go over that budget? Because oh, this is the first deal, so. Absolutely went over the budget. So if the bank would have given me the money, I would have went bankrupt on this project <laughs> because I couldn't have wrote the check to cover the difference between, you know, what we spent in the end and what we plan to spend. And it's hard for me to believe how much money we actually put into the deal. But when you think about all the things that were wrong and the fact that we did a few things twice because we had to redo them after we got permits, again, it's just super inefficient, super inefficient. What do you think was the catalyst to have you guys end up going over budget outside of like, you know, you guys had these projections and this is what you're going to do. You know, we already talked about the permits. What were some other things that you guys run into that you're like, we never saw that coming? That was an easy, like, oh, we we for sure could see that coming. Stupid, right? Um, I think the first thing was the sewer pipe, right? Like I said, that was 30 grand. And so when we were going through on due diligence, we saw that the cabinets were stained, but we assumed it was just water overflow. But what happened was that was actually sewage backup from the crack being in a pipe and it not clearing as it was supposed to. We had okay. people come in. And so half of the property had central HVAC, the other half didn't while the property was vacant because we actually went to 0% occupancy at one point. People came over to the property and there were cages on top of the HVAC units. They hmm. tucked the HVAC units apart by reaching into the cages and you know those were older units so you can't made an old unit with a new indoor unit so we had to replace the whole thing and so you know that was another i don't know 40 or 50 grand maybe a little bit more 
we had to redo all of the plumbing because we decided to add the half bath and the laundry room on the first floor. So because of the amount of flow that was leaving the property, because of all of the different fixtures, we had to upsize not only the drain under that one building that I talked about where we didn't get the permit, but the collection of all of the units, the whole property needed a new connection to the sewer main. And so mm-hmm. we, we didn't see any of those things coming and they hit us right in the mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was after you guys closed or if you guys did a scope of the sewer, you guys would have been good? We would have been okay on the 30 if we did a scope. But I don't think the seller would have done anything for it. He just would have let it go because it had been going for a while. Because we didn't do our permits before we closed, we didn't find out about the upsizing of the main drain until afterwards when we got into the permitting process. Because, you know, coming from the fix and flip world and single family, we thought, hey, we can just use some of the same contractors, right? Yeah. So we thought we were just going to bring our plumber over. (laughs) No, we weren't. Yeah. He didn't even know how to calculate flow, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it was a totally different game. And I'm grateful for the experience. But yeah, I mean, those are some good ones right there. And most yeah. people never even begin to consider the fact that there's a very different standard for commercial versus residential construction. Yeah, for sure. I mean, different standard. A lot of different nomenclature, too, of like people talking about, you know, one thing or the other comparatively to residential or commercial. And, you know, you could be using a completely different adapter or something like that for a pipe comparatively to single family because it's got to support, you know, 30 units or it's got to support 200 units comparatively just, you know, a single family resident. So that's huge to think about from there. So still the same partners that you guys are doing doing the same deals from the first one? No. no. Okay. All right. How are you structured now and where where's your business now? We still do joint ventures, but it's by project. I've got a couple of guys that one I sat on a board with the, my alma mater and another guy I went to college with. They've been in all the deals that I've done so far. And then we add people in kind of on a one-off basis, depending on their interests and how big they want. We're just under 100 doors right now. And we did the one property in Richmond, and then everything else has been in Greensboro, North Carolina. And got a new development deal that we're working on. There's 120 units here in Greensboro. We're also getting ready to take over a property that the city owns. That's another 24-unit, bunch of two-bedrooms that's been boarded up for you know somewhere between five and seven years. Okay. How was that? I've never, you know, purchased anything from the city. How's that experience been? We won the property in February of 2019 and we still haven't closed. Oh, really? What's the <laughs> holdup? I mean, outside of like, obviously, you know, we could talk about going back to the permits, how long those took, but just because the city's slow on doing a ton of things or were there a couple of things they need to catch up on, like, you know, a couple of liens and something else? It was a competitive process. One of the folks who lost decided that they wanted to contest whether or not we actually won, even though like they gave out the points and there was a very wide margin between us and the second closest group. And so there was some legal stuff going on. And then 
there were some other properties or projects that were in their queue that they wanted to get started before they moved on to letting us take this one over. And so we had to reevaluate everything, though, with the way construction costs have changed and so on and so forth. We needed to go back and kind of sharpen our pencil and make sure that we were going to be able to execute the project in a manner that we thought would make sense for our, our business, considering how much work it's going to take to actually bring this thing online. Yeah. So what did those numbers look like? Did they did it look like something? Obviously, you guys are still going through with it. So you guys are able to mitigate the inflation costs of all the materials. Was it a drastic difference? And obviously, there was a margin enough on the value add to be able to support that change in the numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, you know, 30 to 45% increase in budget, depending on whether it's covered in actual cash or there's some grant programs that step in and help us get some things done. For instance, we'll be able to get a lot of our windows replaced through a grant program. And, you know, it. 350 or $400 installed per window multiplied against 24 units. And there's one in every bedroom and in the living room and in the kitchen. Like it starts to add up pretty quick. Yeah. Another program that popped up recently was the HVAC or energy efficiency program. And so we'll be able to get some support there. And, you know, at 4000 to $5,000 a unit, again, those dollars start to add up pretty quickly. And so if we're able to get those things covered, that's where the fluctuation is in that 30 to 40% increase. Yeah, that's huge. How did you guys find out about those programs? Was it something that someone brought to your attention? Absolutely. So yeah. the folks that are in neighborhood development at the city are very much in tune with the awards. And you know, this was the other thing that made it kind of tricky for us is they're using a community development block grant, which is federal dollars, and there's additional streams that come in to play when you use that type of money as far as the wages you have to pay and the bidding process you have to go through before you award things and so on and so forth. And so we just got to make sure that we're shut up and able to do that stuff and stay in compliance so that we don't get in trouble later. Yeah, for sure. Those types of programs, obviously, I I don't know too much about those programs just because I'm not in the, the city or in the multifamily space, but that's cool that at least like they gave you a heads up of, you know, hey, these programs can easily help you on you know, material costs or, you know, infrastructure of the property. So moving forward, like on that deal, when are you guys supposed to close? So we don't have a closing date yet. The last thing we need to do, we're going through financing first. We decided to change horses from a lending standpoint. And then I think the next step is really just getting in front of city council and presenting our final budget schedule, all of the things that they need in order to feel comfortable releasing this property to a small company that hasn't actually done one of these projects in the city before because everything that we've bought so far has been, you know, performing at some level, even if not optimally. And so to go in and onboard something that's been closed up for a long time is, is a pretty big endeavor. Yeah. 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 So the partners that started with you back in 2019 are the, you know, I know you're joint venturing it. They're still with it. They still want to close on it. So this deal yeah, it's just me and one other. Well, actually, okay. we just added another lady to it. So it was just going to be me and my buddy James, who's been in every deal with me. But we just added another young lady to the team who's going to be a rock star in the industry. And we thought it'd be a great project for her to cut her teeth on because she's super interested in construction and just really, really excited about what real estate can do from a lifestyle perspective for her. Yeah, what, you know, 
for this deal and other deals? Like now, after your experience that you've gone through, how are you looking at you know other joint ventures and also other partners that that come into it? What things do you look for that you're like, okay, hey, you know, I could partner with Peter. I you know I'm not going to because of these things. Once you start diving into all the the X's and O's to try to plan out the deal. Yeah, I think this is one of the favorite questions that people ask me because everybody wants to avoid the knee scrapes and elbow bangs that you get going through it. You know, for me, I read a book called Sizing People Up back in 2020, and it did a great job of just giving me an indication of who I should move forward with. The thing that I was messing up more than anything was because I liked somebody, I thought I should trust them. Yeah. And those two things are not the same, right? You can enjoy a person, you can think they're great, but if you can't predict what they're going to do, which is what trust is, being able to predict what the person's going to do, then you probably should take a step back and decide whether or not this is the right move. for you. And so I spend a lot of time with people getting to know them. I don't just want to know, hey, you did this and you did that. Like, I want to know your kids. I want to see you hang out with them. I want to see you with your significant other, just so I can see who you really are, right? It's really easy to get on social media and present this person or, you know, go to this conference and put your suit on and your tie and smile and shake hands. But like, who are you and who do your kids think you are, right? Because they always tell the truth, right? Whether we like it or not, kids tell the truth about who their parents are. And if you're acting weird, they're going to tell on you. If you're not being who you and. I don't believe that people are actually successful at putting masks on. I think over the course of the duration of one of these projects, whether it's three years or 10, the true person is going to come out. And I don't want that surprise. I really want to be able to predict what you're going to do if a situation arises. And the thing that I'm most concerned about is if something goes wrong, are you going to point the fingers at everybody else or are you going to roll up your sleeves and figure out how to get the thing fixed? Because if you're not in the same boat as us, mentally, even though you are physically, you might watch us scoop water out of the boat and say, I'm glad that's not in my end of the boat. And I think everybody's got to be on the same page and totally committed to the outcome. Yeah, it's one of those, you know, it's making sure that for one, obviously, like I went back to when I first was chatting is... You can talk to someone, their vision can align with yours. And then all of a sudden, you know, those actions completely dictate ultimately what they want to do and what they're going to do. So, you know, I've always heard from one big podcaster that they ultimately, after they're going to hire, they'll, the last phase is like go out to dinner with, you know, that potential employee or like the VP or whatever that person's going to be hired for their spouse and then your spouse and go out to dinner with them and then see kind of how they interact from there and do it a couple of times before they actually pull the trigger and hire them as that fit. So, you know, it's a huge takeaway. Like you just said, like kind of getting them out of their element of just like, Hey, I'm going to kind of be in this interview of, you know, going through the process with Jerome sitting down and having coffee. Yeah. I can't emphasize it enough. I mean, when you're doing one of these partnerships, you're hiring a executive it's a key hire, right? Yeah. And if you spend the time finding the deal and then you get into a space or in a place where you're getting ready to give this person equity in your company, even though they're putting some cash in, you're stuck with them for life, potentially. Mm-hmm. How does that work if you haven't actually spent the time getting to know them? I think we just get so glib about 
partnering. But I mean, for me, it's like getting married. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, especially it doesn't matter the size of the deal. Like it could be, you know, one single family residence or it could be, you know, a 200 unit apartment complex. You know, those I've talked to investors that, you know, invested with an individual for 20 to 25 years. And then after that 20 to 25 years, they left with a bad taste in their mouth because the expectations weren't set up front. And one person took, you know, not advantage, but one person didn't do as much as the other person did. And then in that, you know, that just builds resentment and you don't want that either. You know what I mean? Cause that's going to be, then you own those properties five, 10, you know, 200 with that person until either you sell it or that person buys you out. Those are really the two options. There's only two ways out. Yeah. And yeah. with both of those, if you, well, if you don't go to the sell or if you sell prematurely, you're going to lose money, right? Because yeah. the bank's making sure that their money isn't at risk. It's always your money. I call it risk capital. Yeah. So the risk capital is what takes the haircut when things don't go the way they're planning to go. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. I mean, so, you know, we talked about partnership. We talked about where you guys have been. You guys are doing a ton of value add. What have you seen in the market for your specific areas that you're looking for? What have you kind of seen different in the market since last year? And then can you kind of speak on that just with your experience? Yeah, I think people have lost their mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It truly is a seller's market. And People aren't actually buying based on the performance of the asset. They're buying based on what they think it can do. I think it's speculation. And I think some people are going to get hurt. I really do. And I think it's a great time to sell. I think it's a good time to build. And, you know, that's just what my mentors have told me. They've, They've seen something similar to this before. I don't know when it's ever been this way. Yeah. They've seen stuff like this and they're like, yeah, don't buy anything right now you can build for very similar numbers and it's new and it's now recourse the whole way through and it's fixed and fully amortized like why would you do anything other than yeah and you know i'm still open and opportunistic for the folks who actually want to sell based on the performance they that they have yeah but in no way shape or form am i gonna pay a five cap or a four and a half cap for a construction project on a C-class asset. That's just nonsense to me. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. Especially how the market's been changing. What do you use, you know, when you're going through, how have you been able to look at deals analytically? And is that just all you, or is that your partner that's looking at those deals and saying like, Hey, running all these numbers and how, how did that person or you learn those skills to be able to do that? So the short story is School of Hard Knocks. I don't trust anybody else to do analysis because I got to eat the cooking. And sure, somebody can do it, but I can probably analyze a deal in about 30 seconds to know whether or not it's actually worth a deep dive. And so for me, I see that as a superpower. And how did I learn it? School of Hard Knocks. So we get really granular in our reporting on a monthly basis. And then quarterly, we present that to the partners on the deal. And so, you know, when we look at what we model, we don't just use percentages. We have actual data in the marketplace for that type of asset because we like two bedroom townhomes with the half bath on the first floor. Like that is our game. Yeah. And we know what it costs to rehab those. We know what it costs to, you know, run one of those units. And so, you know, some folks are running properties at four hundred and fifty dollars a door per month. 
we've been able to run stuff in the upper 100s. And, you know, will we perform that? No, but we know what we can actually run it for. Mm-hmm. And so having those touch points and looking at them pretty meticulously, it gives us some really strong insight into what it's actually going to be like for us on the backside. But with that said, when we buy a deal, we use the owner's expenses unless they just are ridiculously low, right? And we also don't move off of their income. We don't, if market rent is $700 and you're renting your property for $575, my gross potential rent is based on the $575 per door that you have. It's not based on what market rent is. Yeah. And, you know, I know that, you know, people get creative with Microsoft Word, but I think more lies have been told in Microsoft Excel than Word ever will tell. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, looking at those numbers and stuff like that. So you're going off their basis. So they send you a pro forma and that's just a breakdown of what their current numbers are. So you're not saying, I mean, granted, obviously it's way better to go off their numbers, but when you're projecting the value add, are you guys, you guys are projecting off the future value of it for one, for what you guys have done, what you guys have you know, come up on with all the rehab and the remodel that you've done to it, but also then again, you know, increasing those market rents, right? 1000%. But we don't want their pro forma. We absolutely want their trailing 12. We want their actual financials, right? Okay. It's easy for them to give us round numbers and say, oh, it's about this because we verify with either bank account statements or tax returns. Okay. And that's the other thing, you know, people are just throwing numbers and they don't actually get third party verification. And then they close and they get a big old surprise. So, but our purchase price is set based on the historical performance. It's not based on what we think we can do. And this was one of the things that I learned the hard way. You know, it's really easy for folks to say, oh yeah, they're terrible operators. They have no idea what they're doing or you need to fire their property management. If this person's owned the property for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they probably know the property better than you do. Yeah. For sure. There's probably a reason that the rents are where they are. There's probably a reason that the expenses are where they are. And for you to come in and think that you can do it so much better than them without actually having the reins, because I think they're wild animals, right? Properties that aren't performing optimally are wild animals. And so when you get them, somebody's got to tame that bucking bronco. And to think that you're just going to come do that in month one, day one, mm-hmm. I think is... Uh, is a little egotistical at best and maybe just downright foolish at worst. Yeah. And going through it, I mean, like, what have you seen, especially they show your pro forma, like what are like two or three signs that it's like, even though you get the background, like you get the bank statements or you get the tax returns, what have you seen in your experience where it's like they give you something, but it still doesn't add up and they can kind of hide some numbers. What are some tidbits that you can give our listeners on that? If everything ends in zero or five, <laughs> yeah, okay, it's not actual. Yeah, especially the water bill. Water bills never ends in zero or five. Yeah, yeah. Right? Number two, if everybody pays all the time, it's not real. Number three, and this is probably my favorite one. More often than not, they're not going to tell you to put any money in for capital reserves, and. When I say don't put any money in, their NOI isn't going to have capital reserves subtracted out. Mm. And depending on how many units you have, that can be tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in value. And you have to pull it out. So why would you 
pay them for NOI that isn't actually materializing for you. Yeah, those are good pieces of information, especially, you know, you could definitely get by with utilities, you know, just scrubbing some numbers in and then throwing in, like you said, zeros or fives or, you know, making up oddball numbers to to ultimately get to that number for, for you to purchase it, right? And then just like a single family residence, so many people end up just going into it and saying like, yeah, these numbers are good. And then they don't, they don't actually, you know, do their own research. And, and that's huge is to, to actually go through it and go through it on your own in your team to be able to sit there and say, okay, this is accurate. As you look at it, you're also looking at, you know, what maintenance and repairs they've done in the last three years. So what's your rule of thumb? Like, okay, hey, you know, they haven't done anything in the last two years, but they really did a lot in the last year. Is there some red flags with that on repairs and maintenance that they kind of stopped or they didn't, you know, didn't do in a certain amount of time that you have to look back and look over? Well, I think you just have to buy accordingly, right? So if the property is a value-add property and you're planning to do interior renovations, you should price in what hasn't been done. Yeah. And if you can't make it work with your rent increases, then you probably have a challenge that Mm -hmm. you can't overcome and you probably shouldn't do the deal. And this is where I think we get in trouble when we, we just want to do deals. We force something instead of actually being objective and saying, can I actually do this? And what's the likelihood of me not being successful at it? Because if you're not successful at it, the bank doesn't give you more money. Mm -hmm. That money comes out of your pocket. Yeah. Or you have to sell the deal with it and complete and hope that you can pass the hot potato on to somebody else who doesn't know any better. Yeah. And good for you if you can figure that out. But I think our buyers are becoming more and more educated and you know, as the eviction moratoriums begin to lift and people really find out the condition of their properties and all of the capital expenses that they're going to have to incur in order to get the things rented to somebody who's actually going to be willing to pay, I think there's going to be some folks in for a rude awakening. I watched a property trade, Peter, here. They collected 55% of the gross potential rent last year. Okay. And it traded for what I would have paid if they collected 90% of the gross potential. Really? Was there like a massive amount of value add in it? Was there a lot of spread in it or? No, like they bought it. So to put it in perspective, they bought it at 70,000 a door. The highest sell price for something of that vintage is less than 78,000 a door. If you want to use a price per door basis. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think they have to renovate everything. Dude, there's nothing there. They can't make money. They can't make money on it. So they're counting on cap rate compression. Mm -hmm. They're counting on being able to do things for a number that I don't know they can actually do it for anymore. I mean, think about it. So when they bought it, it was right before the construction prices jumped aggressively. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Then they just got hit with a double whammy, right? Because they didn't buy it with enough margin. I like to call it cushion, right? I need bumpers. I, I, yeah. I need to make sure if I mess up, I, I got something to keep me from flying into a building. But they're just boom, 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 smashing into it. Yeah. And I mean, there's just so much that you can't control when you go into these construction projects. And what happens if cap rates don't compress? What happens if you can't raise the rents to the place that you plan to raise them to? 
what if you know this ninety eight thousand dollars a door or seventy eight thousand dollars a door doesn't actually materialize for you? And sure, a lot of folks say real estate always goes up, but what happens when it doesn't? Yeah. Or the appreciation of rent isn't, you know, nationwide 15%. All of a sudden it's like 1.5% or, you know, negative, you know, a couple of years. Yeah. Those things, you know, you got to, outside of having reserves, you got to have the fundamentals in place before you pull the trigger on something. Well, I mean, think about that though, right? If their construction costs increase by, let's call it 40%, right? Because I think it went more than that, but let's call it 40% conservatively. Even if they had contingency in their budget, they just ate their whole whole thing. Whole and thing's more. gone. Yeah. And and on top of that, and this is the icing on the cake, if they were able to get agency debt, I don't think they were, but if they were able to get agency debt, they had to put the extra money in for reserves. Hmm. Yeah. COVID I mean reserves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard about those too. You know, they came up, sneaked up on people right away. Yeah, you know. Just fundamentals and going back to the basics are what save people. And then being able to, you know, have those reserves built in, not to just what the bank says, but have some more, you know what I mean? Like the bank says you need a hundred K, but you know, have like, have 125, 150, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, you know, not including what you have just as normal reserves for yourself, life, you know, life expectancy. So always need those rainy day funds. All right. Well, so let's transition a little bit. We hit multifamily super hard. So I'm super grateful for that because, you know, you're well-versed in it. With you, how busy you are, have you picked up any books or anything like that that have been super beneficial to your experience through the whole multifamily growth? I will tell you that that Sizing People Up book was amazing. And I think the other one that was big for me in 2020 was StoryBrand. Okay. Story brand was life changing just because you've got to be able to. This business is as much marketing as it is being a technical operator. And I yeah. think that's what so few people actually get when they want to go to market and raise money or find deals or be seen as a thought leader in a space. If you're not able to tell your story in a concise manner so people actually understand what you do and what you're about, you're in trouble. Yeah. And I'll, I'll never forget sitting in front of a room in the hot seat at a mastermind. And one of the originators of this whole syndication movement said, Jerome, if you don't figure out how to go to market and raise money through digital marketing, your business is going to crumble. <laughs> There's 45 people in the room. And I looked yeah. at them and I said, I don't want to raise money. I feel like I just want to do the work. Right to yeah. the point of me being stubborn and saying, hey, this is the way things go. This is what I want to do. I just want to do the work. Felt like I was a nonprofit leader, right? I don't want to go beg people for money. Yeah. But, you know, we figured a lot of stuff out and it took a long time and we spent a bunch of money to get educated on it. But that story brand book, I'll tell you, if, if you can position yourself as the guide and help people to a solution, whatever it is, create passive income or learn how to actually do this business, you can actually make a really big splash in the space because so few people actually do it well. Marketing isn't pretty pictures. It's the ability to communicate the message to folks and make them really understand in a clear and concise way what it is that you do and how you can help them. Yeah, that one's, uh, I read that one a while back. Donald Miller, right? Is the... Yeah, yeah, that one's good. I I read that probably a year, year and a half ago. That one's good. Okay, and so 
you know, using those and then on top of building your business, what type of online resource or tools do you guys use that have been very helpful to make you more efficient? I don't know if it makes us more efficient, but I think I have to say that it is now that I think about it more. LinkedIn has done more to change my network than anything else I can think of. I remember coming to the space and knowing one millionaire. And now the majority of people I talk to are millionaires. Yeah. Like on a daily basis, they spend time talking to folks who own more property and have more cash than I ever thought was possible. That have. <laughs> yeah, that's good, man. That's good. Obviously, uh, growing that network and being able to talk to those people really grow your mindset. So that's definitely beneficial for anybody. You know, it doesn't matter if you're first getting into the space or you've been in the space for 15, 20 years. Jerome, I see you wearing the shirt. What's the background behind the shirt? Yeah, I took the red pill. It's it's our model for a centered life. Okay. So I think a lot of folks want the world to change around them, but they don't see how they need to change in order to create the change that they want. And so in our model, it all starts with self-image. And it's really, that's just your relationship with yourself. How do you see yourself? Are you keeping promises? And if you are, that gives you the courage to actually hold other people accountable, which is the next ring of the red pill, which is relationships. And, you know, as I've spent more time with wealthier and more impactful people, what I found is they usually only have folks coming to them to get things right. They're the source for so many other people and they don't have a whole lot of people around them who can actually create this mutual benefit for them. And so what we look for when we're working with people is can we create a relationship that's mutually beneficial? And if we can't, then we encourage people to end that relationship. The next level of the red pill is work. And in work, once you have amazing relationships, you're immediately seen as a leader, Mm -hmm. right? You have that high standard for yourself and your self-image. You use that to hold other people accountable and create that mutual benefit. And when you are able to walk in that integrity with your morals and values, then usually in your work, your responsibility expands. And usually that expansion and responsibility leads to more income. And so our goal here is in those three, what we call the nucleus, relationship, self-image, and work, that's where all the stress comes from. So we want to fix all those things, get those super healthy. And then once you have those, you start to eliminate the self-destructive behavior. Right. And so the next level of the red pill is health. Right. If you're not self destructing, then you can really focus on your weight and your mental space and all of the things that we tend to neglect because we're eating things we shouldn't eat, drinking or smoking things we shouldn't do because they don't actually make our life any better. Right. It allows us to escape temporarily, but the problems are still there when we come back. Yeah. So you fix your health. And we want to do the health before we do the prosperity, which is level five, because if you have prosperity before you have your health, you'll spend all your prosperity on your health. So I don't really enjoy being a slingshot, right? I want people to actually ascend in a way where they don't have to go backwards because they've got the super solid foundation. And so in prosperity, I super, I believe in abundance and I want people to be, you know, exceedingly generous, but after they put their own mask on. Right. The lady or the guy who was talking to you last time you got on a flight and said, if we lose cabin pressure, put your mask on first, then help others. 
was not only talking about on the plane, they're talking about in life, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy for you to say, oh, well, that person was less fortunate than me. I need to give to them. But if you haven't taken care of yourself, you giving to somebody else just puts you in a worse space and eventually you'll run out of air. And money and air are very similar from the stance of money doesn't really matter as long as you have it. Yeah. Right. Just like air. But the yeah. moment that it's gone and you don't have it, that's when you can end up in a space where it's super scary and intense. Yeah. And so then the final piece is significance, right? And so out of your overflow, out of your prosperity, you want to be able to sow into other people's lives and usually think about significance in three ways, you know, your time, talent, and treasures. And so your ability, because you're not chasing the prosperity to give to others generously allows you to actually become significant. And that is what causes us to be immortal or have a legacy. And so, you know, the six levels of the red pill, self-image, relationship, work, health, prosperity, and significance is what we use to create a centered life. I don't believe that you actually ever have balance. I think everything's like spaghetti. It's all mixed up and you just weave your way through and take care of the activities, right? Some activities you get paid for, others you don't. But as long as you're doing that stuff in good spirit, I think you end up with a really amazing life. Dude, I mean, all those are really good. Does your own website have, you know, a link to to the red pill or yeah. or a breakdown? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. So if folks go to uh, JeromeMyers.co, they can get the deep dive on all this good stuff. Okay, cool. All those, dude, all that encompasses, you know, obviously some, you know, layers that people have to build into their lives and stuff like that. But it would be good, obviously, if they jump on your website to have a deep dive and look through it and be able to grasp it and eat that up and be able to, you know, produce it in their life. Because a lot of people you and I run into or, you know, other people run into, they may be missing one or two aspects. So that's cool that you're, you've built that and been able to, you know, at least get that information out there for people. That's cool. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you that we should cover before we jump off the podcast? Only thing I want to say to the listeners, Peter, is your dreams should be real. And I don't hear anybody talking about it. And the reality is we spend so much time chasing stuff. But what if you could catch it? What if you could actually have your heaven on earth? What if it wasn't just an illusion? What if it wasn't a figment of your imagination? And I truly believe that. And I want more people to actually believe that and then act as if. And just be the person you need to be. Now, you may not be where you need to be yet in order to have the things, right? I I keep this little Lamborghini thing up here because I want a Lamborghini Aventador, right? I haven't grown into the guy yet that can afford to spend $450,000 on the cars. I still (laughs) need to buy real estate. I still need to do other stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, But it's aspirational. And I think I can have that one day. And the world tells us, that we just need to be realistic. We need to be practical. And that is the fastest way to be a mediocre. For those folks who are out there and, and they want more and everybody looks at them like they're weird, I want you to know that there are a whole lot of other people out there like you. And you just have to find your tribe and get connected with them because they're living a very different life than what you see most people live. They're uncommon amongst the uncommon. And those folks are special. And if you can link arms with them, it will immediately take you to the next level. What do you think one thing, you know, out of all that, what do you think one thing stops people from, you know, catching their dreams? 
the environment they're in. Yeah. Most people who set out to accomplish something do it without the support system that they need. And then when they get tired, when their stamina runs out, they turn back. And so the way I like to describe it is when you're in the jungle, there's always fruit, there's shade, you can get away from the sun. But in order to get to paradise, you've got to go through the desert. And what happens to most people is they don't see the next oasis. And so they get scared because they feel Mm -hmm. like they're going to run out of supply. And they're on this journey alone without somebody who's done it before. So they turn back and they go back to what's comfortable and familiar. For the people who actually get in a cluster, get in a pack, get some camels, get some folks who've explored the desert, they find the next oasis and then the next, and then eventually they make it to their paradise. Yeah, no, that's good environment. And, you know, those relationships kind of going back to what you said, you know, you used to not know really anybody that was a millionaire, but now you do. So I think that 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 drives people and that pushes people to be even better at what they really wanted to do. So Jerome, dude, this has been awesome to sit down and, and chat with you a little bit, especially, you know, how you have been able to mold what, you know, you came from in the corporate life into, you know, buying multifamily. So I think, you know, going back to catching those dreams, I think you're someone that's going to catch the Lambo that you have up there on your desk and then also many more dreams. I appreciate your confidence, Peter. Yeah, 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 man. Thank you so much for coming on and, you know, chatting a little bit today about what you're doing now and how you're inspiring people. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Okay, that was our episode with Jerome. He outlines a lot of good things in there, a lot of things that, you know, people don't really think about when they're getting that real estate bug and getting into real estate. So we talk about partnerships. We do talk about multifamily. We talk about how he ended up doing flips and that's very active versus where he wanted to be in a position that they were more passive. So he talks about that. And then he talks about what type of things that he took away from working in a corporate environment and what he did and didn't like. So tune into that as well, especially if you're working right now in a corporate setting. He gives some insight on how he enjoyed it, what he didn't enjoy about it, and ultimately how he was able to break out of that. So if that's something that you're looking for later down the road or more than later down the road, just making sure that you're in a position to exit that company in the next couple of years, it's something to listen to how he was able to do that. He got into real estate and built that real estate empire while he was kind of working at the same time, you know, building it and then ultimately exiting it. So Good to listen to, very beneficial for, you know, I know a lot of people listen to real estate podcasts, think about that, especially if they're in a position at a company and that they don't really enjoy. So awesome stuff to take away from this podcast. Um, Jerome does have a lot of knowledge about multifamily and, and also, you know, just in general real estate. So reach out to him. And I just want to say thank you to everybody that tunes into the show every week. We'll get you guys a market update here in the next week. So you guys have some tangible information to take to your clients and also, you know, take home. So you guys can use that when you're looking around for properties. Thanks so much. And if you guys can leave us a rating and review wherever you guys listen to us. Thanks. Talk to you guys soon. Bye.